This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 11, Sections 9-12 through 12. Sections 9. Of the worship of images, its nature, a pretext of idolaters refuted, pretexts of the heathen, genius of idolaters. 10. Evasion of the papists, their agreement with ancient idolaters. 11. Refutation of another evasion or sophism, the distinction of dulia and latria. In 12, third division of the chapter, in the face of the use and abuse of images. Section 9. After such a figment is formed, adoration forthwith ensues. For when once men imagined that they beheld God in images, they also worshipped him as being there. At length their eyes and minds, becoming wholly engrossed by them, they began to grow more and more brutish, gazing and wondering as if some divinity were actually before them. It hence appears that men do not fall away to the worship of images until they have imbibed some idea of a grosser description. Not that they actually believe them to be gods, but that the power of divinity somehow or other resides in them. Therefore, whether it be God or a creature that is imaged, the moment you fall prostrate before it in veneration, you are so far fascinated by superstition. For this reason, the Lord not only forbade the erection of statues to himself, but also the consecration of titles and stones which might be set up for adoration. For the same reason, also, the second commandment has an additional part concerning adoration. For as soon as a visible form is given to God, his power also is supposed to be annexed to it. So stupid are men, that wherever they figure God, there they fix him, and by necessary consequence proceed to adore him. It makes no difference whether they worship the idol simply, or God and the idol. It is always idolatry when divine honors are paid to an idol, be the color what it may. And because God wills not to be worshipped superstitiously, whatever is bestowed upon idols is so much robbed from him. Let those attend to this, who set about hunting for miserable pretexts in defense of the execrable idolatry in which for many past ages true religion has been buried and sunk. It is said that the images are not accounted gods, Nor were the Jews so utterly thoughtless as not to remember that there was a God whose hand led them out of Egypt before they made the calf. Indeed, Aaron sang that these were the gods which had brought them out of Egypt. They intimated in no ambiguous terms that they wished to retain God, their deliverer, provided they saw him going before them in the calf. Nor are the heathen to be deemed to have been so stupid as not to understand that God was something else than wood and stone. For they changed the images at pleasure, 
but always retained the same gods in their minds. Besides, they daily consecrated new images without thinking they were making new gods. Read the excuses which Augustine tells us were employed by the idolaters of his time. The vulgar, when accused, replied that they did not worship the visible object, but the deity which dwelt in it invisibly. Those again who had what he calls a more refined religion said that they neither worshipped the image nor any inhabiting deity, but by means of the corporeal image beheld a symbol of that which it was their duty to worship. What then? All idolaters, whether Jewish or Gentile, were actuated in the very way which has been described. Not contented with spiritual understanding, they thought that images would give them a surer and nearer impression. When once this preposterous representation of God was adopted, there was no limit until, deluded every now and then by new impostures, they came to think that God exerted his power in images. Still, the Jews were persuaded that under such images they worshipped the eternal God, the one true Lord of heaven and earth, and the Gentiles also, in worshipping their own false gods, supposed them to dwell in heaven. Section 10 It is an impudent falsehood to deny that the thing which was thus anciently done is also done in our day. For why do men prostrate themselves before images? Why, when in the act of praying, do they turn towards them as to the ears of God? It is indeed true, as Augustine says, that no person thus prays or worships, looking at an image without being impressed with the idea that he is heard by it, or without hoping that what he wishes will be performed by it. Why are such distinctions made between different images of the same God, that while one is passed by or receives only common honor, another is worshipped with the highest solemnities? Why do they fatigue themselves with votive pilgrimages to images while they have many similar ones at home? Why at the present time do they fight for them to blood and slaughter, as for their altars and hearths, showing more willingness to part with the one God than with their idols? And yet I am not now detailing the gross errors of the vulgar, errors almost infinite in number, and in possession of almost all hearts. I am only referring to what those profess who are most desirous to clear themselves of idolatry. They say we do not call them our gods, nor did either the Jews or Gentiles of old so call them, and yet the prophets never ceased to charge them with their adulteries, with wood and stone, for the very acts which are daily done by those who would be deemed Christians, namely for worshipping God carnally in wood and stone. Section 11 I am not ignorant, however, and I have no wish to disguise the fact that they endeavor to evade the charge by means of a more subtle distinction, which shall afterwards be fully considered. The worship which they pay to their images, they cloak with the name of Edoladuleia, Edoladuleia, and deny to be Edolalatreia, Edolatreia. So they speaks holding that the worship which they call Dulia may, without insult to God, be paid to statues and pictures. Hence they think themselves blameless if they are only the servants 
and not the worshippers of idols, as if it were not a lighter matter to worship than to serve. And yet, while they take refuge in a Greek term, they very childishly contradict themselves. For the Greek word latruin, having no other meaning than to worship, what they say is just the same as if they were to confess that they worship their images without worshiping them. They cannot object that I am quibbling upon words. The fact is that they only betray their ignorance while they attempt to throw dust in the eyes of the simple. But how eloquent soever they may be, they will never prove by their eloquence that one and the same thing makes two. Let them show how the things differ, if they would be thought different from ancient idolaters. For as a murderer or an adulterer will not escape conviction by giving some adventitious name to his crime, so it is absurd for them to expect that the subtle device of a name will exculpate them. If they in fact differ in nothing from idolaters, whom they themselves are forced to condemn, but so far are they from proving that their case is different, that the source of the whole evil consists in a preposterous rivalship with them, while they with their minds devise and with their hands execute symbolical shapes of God. Section 12 I am not, however, so superstitious as to think that all visible representations of every kind are unlawful. But as sculpture and paintings are gifts of God, what I insist for is that both shall be used purely and lawfully, that gifts which the Lord has bestowed upon us for his glory and our good shall not be preposterously abused, nay, shall not be perverted to our own destruction. We think it unlawful to give a visible shape to God, because God himself has forbidden it, and because it cannot be done without in some degree tarnishing his glory. And lest any should think that we are singular in this opinion, those acquainted with the productions of sound divines will find that they have always disapproved of it. If it be unlawful to make any corporeal representation of God, still more unlawful must it be to worship such a representation instead of God, or to worship God in it. The only things, therefore, which ought to be painted or sculptured are things which can be presented to the eye. The majesty of God, which is far beyond the reach of an eye, must not be dishonored by unbecoming representations. Visible representations are of two classes, that is, historical, which give a representation of events, and pictorial, which merely exhibit bodily shapes and figures. The former are of some use for instruction or admonition. The latter, so far as I can see, are only fitted for amusement. And yet it is certain that the latter are almost the only kind which have hitherto been exhibited in churches. Hence we may infer that the exhibition was not the result of judicious selection, but of a foolish and inconsiderate longing. I say nothing as to the improper and unbecoming form in which they are presented, or the wanton license in which sculptors and painters have here indulged, a point to which I alluded a little ago, supra section 7. I only say that though they were otherwise faultless, they could not be of any utility in teaching. <laughs>